welcome back. Our next panel, which will focus on delivering a capital markets union, it'll be moderated by Professor Tenrero from the London School of Economics, and she'll be joined by a very distinguished panel. Professor? Thank you very much, Faria. I'm very pleased to be here moderating this session. We have four distinguished panelists um, from your far right uh, to left. Paul de Hrowe, professor at the London School of Economics. Jim Esposito, co-head of the Global Financing Group at Goldman Sachs. I feel like a player coach now that I yeah. sat in your seat and now I'm on the panel. Jonathan Fall, director general of financial stability, financial services, and capital markets union at the European Commission. And last but not least, Philippe Iturbide, uh, Global Head of Research, Analysis, and Strategy at the Mundi. So let me start um, by asking Jonathan to outline the European Commission's objectives for a capital markets union. Well, we've heard a lot about that already today. I mean, our, our immediate objective is to have a debate. Uh, and that's why uh, we've issued a green paper and various uh, accompanying uh, documents, securitization, for example. Uh, we uh, realize that there is a need, and uh, uh, I think that has been uh, clearly demonstrated by what was said earlier here, uh, to look again at capital markets in Europe and how they operate. It is true to say, as somebody said earlier, weren't we supposed to have done this in about 1959? Uh, it's been in the treaties as long as we've had treaties. Uh, and uh, that, of course, is a little unfair because we've done quite a lot. Capital movements are freer than they were uh, in 1960, 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000 even. But uh, there's still a lot more to be done. And the recent crisis has focused attention on just what we are missing by uh, not having uh, continental uh, uh, capital markets, I nearly said a continental capital market, at least a set of continental capital markets working uh, across our 28 countries together. Uh, why do we think this is necessary? Obviously to improve access to financing. We've heard abundantly today uh, about the dangers of over-reliance on uh, bank finance. Uh, we've heard also about the importance of diversification, and that's another important objective. Uh, and finally, just making capital markets work uh, better and more efficiently uh, across Europe. What do we need to do first? What do we need to talk about and do later? Uh, what sort of instruments uh, uh, are necessary? Is this simply a matter of enforcing or tweaking or amending laws already there? Uh, is it uh, how much new legislation may or may not be necessary? How much can we do? We looked at that this morning as well. I'm sorry, not this morning, early this afternoon. How much can we do uh, uh, by what we call country-specific recommendations, spreading good practices, seeing what works, holding them up as examples, because there are good examples. Capital markets do work uh, in good ways in various parts of Europe, in various uh, uh, circumstances, and we can uh, take those examples and spread them more widely. So it's a, a variety of different objectives uh, differentiated in time. There are indeed, we hope, uh, low-hanging fruit where we can get something going fast, and Lord knows we need growth and jobs fast in the European economy, and there are longer-term projects. We've given ourselves, Lord Hill has a five-year term 
uh, in which to do this, but we, we want to get moving fast. Thank you. So let's, let's turn to these steps or actions needed. And let me start with Jim, asking Jim, does everything in the capital markets union in Europe need fixing as it is? Or are there areas of the capital markets that are actually working well? And which ones are those? And what can we learn from that? Sure. I think we need to be mindful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater around what's working and not working in the European capital markets. I would cite three important and large areas of the capital markets that are working incredibly well here in Europe. The first is, if you're a large cap investment grade rated European company, you have no, no issue, you have unencumbered access to credit markets right now. European investment grade companies enjoy the exact same access that their US peers would enjoy in terms of accessing credit markets. The second, and I think this is critical in Europe, and it came about with really no regulatory change. The high yield bond market in Europe has grown by leaps and bounds. It's grown at something like a 30% compound annual growth rate since the financial crisis. And so by having a steady stream of supply, the buy sides invested a lot in building out credit teams that are able to do analysis on new companies that are coming to market in Europe we're not gonna to get to the other side as banks pull back in Europe if we don't have a deep and liquid high yield bond market. That's starting to happen here. A decade ago, the European high yield market was dominated by cable issuers. It was pretty much only a cable sector um, market and supply was fickle. The investor mentality was also very fickle. The third area that I would highlight, and this statistic actually surprises me, if you look at IPO volumes last year, the difference between the Europe and the US, and you can think about many IPOs getting done by growth companies, IPO volumes last year in Europe actually outpaced US IPO volumes. So large cap investment grade uh, issuers, no issues. High yield bond market growing by leaps and bounds. Growth companies having access to you know, taking themselves public via the IPO market. I actually feel pretty good about what's going on in Europe. Great. Uh, Jonathan, do investors have the information they need, including invest investment options, or are there informational barriers that impair or restrict cross-border flows of savings? No, there are barriers, there are gaps. Uh, and uh, if you look at some of the, the figures, actually, they're quite uh, startling. 75% of owner-managed companies do not have a credit score. Uh, that makes investment in them complicated. Uh, and uh, therefore, and again, that's another good example of where actually one of our countries, France as it happens, has something useful that others can learn from. The French have a very good set of historical data about SME, uh, uh, about SMEs and their, and their credit rating. So that is useful. On the other hand, we find it seems paradoxical, but actually it's not that a lot of SMEs tell us you are overburdening us with information requirements in the prospectuses directive, for example. So you're impeding our access to uh, stock exchanges because it's so complicated. So we have a balance to strike uh, between the information which is necessary for investors to make an informed judgment uh, and uh, the burden on uh, what is inevitably by definition a rather small uh, operation in generating all these data. 
Uh, but we can do that. Uh, we have ideas for that. But at the moment, we are consulting, and we look forward to all of your contributions. Thank you. Philip, do we need to look at the way Europeans save and how those savings are invested, including pensions? Uh, we have to, definitely, because uh, as the panelists previously said, Europe is not short of savings, definitely. But Europe is short of long-term savings, long-term investors. Uh, when we want to find long-term investors in Europe, we have to, in, to, to, to place uh, products. We have to pay attention to Asia, North America, etc. In Europe, it's, it's not that easy. The second question about the uh, savings is the question about whether the savings is, used, uh, more, uh, is being used more productively. This is the question. Today, if you look at savings in Europe, the bulk of savings is on the real estate. For example, in France, two-thirds of the, of the financial assets and financial wealth is on, the, on real estate. Second, save, saving stage within the domestic countries, within the banks, with the banks, deposits. Uh, Europe, we have three times bigger deposits than in the United States. And as I said, the, the, the bulk of savings is within the real estate. And we have a lot of obstacles, in fact. The first one is historical. The second one is cultural. You know, there is a lack of education. What is risk compared to return? Uh, the third one is about uh, education, as I said. Uh, the fourth is about language. And last but not least, legal and regulation. It's, it's, in Europe, we have, built some, we have created some kind of schizophrenia. If I were prime minister of Spain, I would have my finance minister would be absolutely uh, happy to have the banks buying Spanish bonus. But if I were the Minister of Economics, I would be completely depressed because the bulk of money is going into the financing the debt, which is good in one hand, but nothing going to the, to the economy. So we have to change these kind of obstacles and particularly uh, regulation in order to stop uh, financial repression. Somewhere, sometimes, we will have to revert it because it's absolutely counterproductive. Thank you. Jim, what's the best way to mobilize savers? Is it through new platforms, such as a new minibond platform in Italy, or is it through uh, increasing the, the range of products in which investors can invest? Yeah, I don't think there's a simple answer to your question. I don't think I could point to a single thing that will really unlock the savings. I think it's probably about doing a bunch of little things differently and doing a bunch of little things well I would highlight a couple of things, however. One is streamlining and harmonizing documentation. You know, it, it's very hard for either a European investor or an international investor to get up to speed on 27 or 28 different insolvency or bankruptcy codes, right? Uh, it's very hard when there's different requirements around disclosure and for an investor to understand that. I highlighted in the earlier panel the need to potentially consider relaxing some of the constraints around the European retail investor. I would support you know, some, some consideration and discussion around what should be a permissible product for retail invest, to invest in. I find it somewhat odd that a retail investor in Europe is allowed to invest in a below investment grade rated high yield bond, but not in a below investment grade rated loan. The loan product, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a floating rate product. It's a good product. And, and so we, we can look at those areas to try to really unlock some of that savings. And then you mentioned mini bond platforms. We haven't discussed in great detail peer-to-peer -peer lenders. But I think all of these things will play a part in the future of unlocking some of the savings. Right now, peer-to-peer -peer electronic platforms in Europe are really specific to individual countries. 
they're not really able to play a role in pan-European pan lending. I think we should look at changing that and, and discussing what it takes to change that. Mini bond platforms, private placement uh, discussions, I think are all gonna be a part of the solution of unlocking some of the savings. Okay, thank you. Jonathan, reading through the Commission's green paper circulated last week, there are various initiatives, going back to um, what Jim was saying, trying to help this transition from private to public markets. And one of them is, is the pan-European pan private placement market, as well as changes to the prospectus directive. Do you think they can have a meaningful impact uh, and, and what are the risks or problems that uh, they might bring along? Yes, I think they can. Uh, and again, we see that they work in some of our countries pretty well. The French, the Germans have uh, fairly successful private placement uh, markets. Others don't. We need to understand why. Uh, and uh, we need to look at how we can replicate what works best and avoid what doesn't work so well. Uh, and then we'll have to look at what instruments may be necessary to, to achieve that. Uh, so at the moment, we've seen the problem. Uh, we've looked around Europe uh, and seen what works and where it works. We've seen what happens in other countries, United States uh, uh, in particular, where uh, private placement, uh, private placement three times the, the volume in, uh, in Europe. Why? Uh, why is it like that? Uh, what are we missing? And, and how, can we, how can we address the problem? So yes, I think that is something that uh, uh, rightly deserves our attention. Uh, and it's something that we would like to get moving on quickly. So let's collect all the information we can uh, about, uh, about how people see it in, in practice. The same for the prospectus directive. As you all know, we've amended this several times before. Uh, we think we get the balance right and then we don't. Uh, uh, we're addressing all sorts of different interests every time we do it. It's well known to be a difficult exercise. It's a good time to do it again. Uh, and uh, this time, let's try to be a little better in getting the balance right than we have in the past. Uh, you need information in a prospectus, obviously, uh, but you don't want to overburden those who have to provide it. Uh, so if people tell us, and so far they have, but we look forward to, to more information, if people tell us that this is a real obstacle, uh, particularly for smaller companies uh, in uh, tapping equity markets, okay, uh, uh, there are certainly ways of dealing with it. Thank you. We've heard a lot about securitization in Europe in the previous sessions and as a way to enhance funding for SMEs. Um, Jim, what do we need to uh, really get kick-started with securitization in Europe? And is there investors' appetite for asset-backed securities? Look, I'm not sure we need major regulatory or policy change to get securitization markets jump-started. I'll go back to the example that I gave about the European high-yield bond market. I wouldn't underestimate the importance of a consistent source of supply. And so the buy side, large investors are not gonna staff up, they're not gonna focus on a product unless they're guaranteed that it's worth their while to build out a team to really focus on a new product. Part of the problem in securitization in Europe is the supply has been fickle at best. Um, and so investors are willing to devote more energy and effort towards it. 
but they're not convinced yet that there's going to be a consistent amount of supply. And so Hugh mentioned earlier a chicken and egg discussion. I think securitization does fall into that characterization as well. Now look, are there areas where we could equally streamline documentation standards, harmonize documentation standards around securitization? There is. But for me, the single biggest issue is we haven't yet had a steady stream of supply. If we can develop that, I think the market will get its legs underneath it. Thank you. Philip, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, about the ABS. ABS is a fantastic market. But of course, big, since the crisis, this market was killed due to the default rate in the United States. 20% around versus less than 2% in Europe. So there's very bad reputation. And the question about the uh, ABS at the moment, it's probably the timing is not excellent in the sense that the banks are reluctant to sell the loans they have. And of course, when, for a market to be efficient, you need liquidity, transparency, blah, blah, blah. Plus, you need supply and demand. You have, a, you have a lot of people being able to structure this kind of product. We have a lot of investors. Uh, as you probably know, Amundi is one of the few uh, uh, asset managers being in charge with, with, the con with the, uh, mandate with the with mandate with the ECB on the ABS. We are fans of this product, but there's new loans. There's no new loans from the banks in the peripheral countries, and the banks are reluctant to sell their loans. So it's very difficult to reactivate this market without uh, the, the, this segment. Yeah, it goes back to my QE point from the uh, earlier panel. I think QE and all the central bank intervention has helped avoid a violent round of deleveraging, but now's the time in Europe to get on to this managed round of deleveraging. European banks right now have no incentives to sell off loans, have no incentives to package loans up and securitize them. So there are probably some minor adjustments we would make around the edges, but I think a lot of it's the lack of supply the liquidity that's available in markets, and banks, to be quite blunt, not feeling the pressure that they need to bring their balance sheets down today. They know five years from now they're going to be a lot smaller than they are today, but they're going to wait to the 11th hour until they adjust the size of their balance sheets. Thank you. So what measures could incentivize institutional investors to raise and invest in larger amounts, including SMEs, startups, long-term projects? There are plenty of requisites, but one is essential, is uh, access to, uh, to data. Today, you mentioned the credit score of the companies. Who knows the company? The banks. Not necessarily the asset managers or the investors. Mm. And as long as we don't have this kind of database giving access to information, it's very complex. Of course, for the, for, the, for the CIO, for the portfolio managers, for the regulator, and for the risk management department as well. So what we do need at the moment is to build, uh, uh, to, to break some <coughs> difference between the countries, where there was some debate about the insolvency laws in, of the companies. But the most important today is probably to have access to some data. Because since the crisis, again, the risk department is much more, I would say, present, active in the, in the investment. And as long as we don't have data, it's very complex to, to invest in. Because we know the structure in ABS, but we don't necessarily know all the components of, of, of the structure, particularly for SCBs. Yeah, just two small points to add on. One is, you know, again, recognizing that technology can play a role in the capital markets going forward. And a bank like Goldman Sachs might not be involved in that at all. Uh, so I, I do think technology is a fantastic way to connect buyers and sellers. 
and for the SME issue that potentially plagues Europe, I have to believe technology is a way to unlock some of the savings. And, and so if I was a policymaker, um, probably a dangerous thought, but if I were, uh, I would spend a lot of attention looking at ways that technology could potentially unlock the savings and direct investment towards SMEs. That would be a big area of focus of mine. Second, going back to securitization, one of the reasons why securitization is important as a financing technique, it helps free up balance sheet capacity for banks, right? It's a de-risking exercise, but more importantly, it frees up capacity for banks. I'm not suggesting that banks won't play a big role going forward in SME lending, but if balance sheets are clogged up, if balance sheets don't have the capacity to continue to do local lending, and lending's always gonna be local around the globe, but specifically here in Europe, so securitizing assets will free up the capacity and make lending available to SMEs. New lending, you mean? Yeah, new lending. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, in this search for more non-bank funding, won't the capital market union risk uh, increasing the shadow banking sector and unregulated markets, putting, putting financial stability at risk? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that a great deal has been done uh, for financial stability in the last five, six years. Uh, in Europe, in each of our countries, internationally, uh, that is the new platform, the new basis. And some of that work continues. 100% stability uh, is not what we're looking for. You don't get uh, growth without risk, uh, and uh, you have to be uh, extremely precise in uh, uh, protecting the vulnerable against risk for which they cannot be held responsible while keeping risk uh, flowing uh, through, the, uh, through the economy. So we think we've got the basis right. We think we are capable, but again, subject to everything that everybody's going to tell us, uh, to uh, uh, move forward uh, having learned lessons uh, from uh, what we've experienced in the last few years. We will remain alert and vigilant. Uh, others will too. Uh, shadow banking, it's an unfortunate word. By the way, the, the FSB is trying to bury it, having no doubt created it, uh, and uh, likes to talk about market-based finance. Now, shadow sounds dodgy. Uh, it's a bit like dark pools. There must be something sinister going on. Uh, shadow banking has a perfectly... Uh, legitimate, valid, important role to play uh, in, uh, in the financing of our economies. So uh, uh, my answer to the question is remain vigilant. Uh, uh, do not promise anybody 100% stability because you don't get that in life. Uh, and uh, you build on what has been achieved uh, going forward and you try to learn the lessons of the mistakes of the past. Uh, and uh, use the new platform, and in Europe, use the enormous scale and scope uh, of a 28, even 31, if you include our friends in the rest of the European economic area, uh, country single market. Thank you. Is there a need for regulatory change, um, Philippe? Do you think uh, we need a change, for example, in the capital uh, framework for investors? What's your view on this? 
the question is, if we want to promote SMEs financing, if we want to promote equities, venture capital, uh, private placement, which makes sense because if you look at the size for Europe compared to the United States, the size is between one to three, one to five. So if we want to do that, and there's a huge potential, of course we have to change the regulation. It's a pity to see that the biggest asset manager in, uh, asset, uh, uh, insurance company in Europe has around 5% equities in its portfolio. It's a pity. It depends on what we want. If we really want to activate the economy, growth, innovation, we have to favor startup SMEs. If we want to, uh, to, 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 to encourage growth, innovation, investment, we have to do it. And as a consequence, we have to revert somewhere sometime the regulation, the, the, the taxation savings. You know, France, for example, is, ta is taxing savings. It's probably one of the few countries doing that. Okay, perfect. We love taxes, not as a payer. Okay. <laughs> the French love taxes. But what we do, we do it in a, a the opposite way. So we exclude investment uh, incentive to equities, venture capital, etc., which is, which is dramatic. So we have to change tax, tax policy in, 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 in uh, financial instruments, and we have to change regulation in order to help uh, to give support to the, to, to the big and small and mid-sized companies. Definitely, we have to. Thank if you. I could just add to that, I, I would just highlight, and, and some of the speakers have made this point today, that every regulatory action has a corresponding reaction by the markets. And I highlighted that banks running with more capital and more liquidity is, is a positive. Banks are much more secure, they're much more stable than they've been over the past 50 years, so I couldn't be more supportive of that. However, banks holding the level of capital that they're holding today means they're changing the complexity and what they hold on their balance sheets. So if I were looking for things that you know, keep me up at night, risks in the market that maybe we're growing complacent around, I would highlight secondary market liquidity for corporate bonds, both high yield bonds, investment grade bonds, and even emerging market corporates. New issue volumes are running at all time highs in credit markets, yet if you track the aggregate holdings of banks, of corporate bonds, banks serving their traditional role as a market maker and a liquidity provider for corporate bonds, corporate bond holdings in aggregate in the banking system is running close to a decade low right now. You can actually track, the Federal Reserve publishes this data of aggregate corporate bond holdings. Banks aren't playing their traditional role of being a market maker in corporate bonds. Why? Because the ROE of that business isn't sufficient. Uh, it's changed now that banks are holding more regulatory capital. And I don't know how you unlock that, but I would just suggest that you know, there's some real issues if and when the interest rate, interest rate cycle changes, if and when liquidity gets removed from the markets, we're issuing bond volumes at, at record highs and we're not providing the liquidity that we traditionally have. And that's just setting itself up for something that deserves a lot of attention. And again, you know, there's no easy answers to any of this, but holding more capital and more liquidity has changed the secondary market dynamic for corporate bonds and we're just gonna to have to see how that plays out in the future. Thank you, and let me now turn to the last question and ask uh, Paul, starting by Paul, I would like to hear everybody's view on this. The pooling of risks through securitization as well as many other measures uh, aimed towards this capital market union uh, will certainly help in the diversifying firm level risk and this will increase risk taking by firms and hopefully lead to more investment which is the ultimate goal here. Um, 
However, there is a risk. Um, aren't we risking higher exposure to aggregate or systemic risk? Uh, should we be concerned about it? How should we react within the Capital Markets Union? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I think we have um, discussed um, most of the time the benefits of Capital Markets Union, but very, we spent very little time on discussing the risks of a Capital Markets Union. And um, the way I would like to introduce it is as follows. Uh, financial capitalism is a wonderful human invention. Right? It allows savings to be channeled to the best uh, investment projects, uh, increasing material welfare, and in fact, it's the only system that, that can do that in, a, in an efficient way. But it's also an unstable system, right? That we have learned from history, it's, it's highly unstable. Um, and, and we have to think about this, what, what we are creating then in Europe. And, um, and, and the risk I see then are the following. Let me just focus on two. One is that when large economic shocks occur, then capital market integration has all the potential of increasing, amplifying that shock. And, and let me again go back to what happened in the monetary union. We started the monetary union. Um, the, the immediate effect of the monetary union was in fact to integrate the interbank market, right? And the money market. It was a, an immediate effect. And it led to large scale capital movements from the north, basically the north of Europe to the periphery, um, leading to booms, bubbles in all these places, and then a crash, right? And we did all this like blind people, right? Because nobody, um, everybody was saying, well, policymakers were saying at least, um, you don't need a regulatory environment to, to deal with this. This will all be okay, right? We heard the same thing today, right? I do think that capital market integration has this potential when, when you go all the way of unleashing these large capital movements that have the potential, like so often in history, of leading to pockets of booms and busts and then crashes, and there is no institutional environment to take care of this. A second twist that I see has to do with something that, that has been going on very recently with the Greek dis the discussion about Grexit. Right? It's clear that the monetary union, the Eurozone, may not be a permanent thing. Right? We have been discussing the possibility of one country being kicked out, right? which means that it may not be permanent, which creates a domination risk, a de-domination risk, and which be a huge obstacle <laughs> for individual agents and institutions to diversify. Because if, if there is a denomination, you are knocked off. Right? So these are risks that we have to take into account. Another way I would like to put it is as follows. Um, in normal periods, in normal circumstances, capital market integration is a wonderful mechanism. Right? It does all the things we have been talking about. In addition, it's an insurance mechanism. When you have any asymmetric shocks, like economists say, it, it allows, in fact, to, to um, stabilize the system. Right? Uh, one country is hit badly, another well. Yeah, but I, I didn't have any time uh, to, to talk before. Give me some time when I add it all up. Uh, okay, I'm almost finished. I'm almost finished. Um, so. In, in normal times, it, 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 won't, it works wonderfully. In times where there is a lack of trust 
capital markets and capital market integration is a huge source of instability. It will lead to upheaval when people don't trust uh, the system. And as a result, it will put a lot of pressure on fiscal institutions to deal with the instability, right? We have, we, we, we have fiscal, um, we have governments that, that, that whose duty it is to take care of these instabilities that can be unleashed um, in times of an uncertainty. And so here I am to say that, well, it's, it's half big. The capital market union without things like what Charles was, was mentioning, some regulatory and supervisory institutions is very dangerous to do. Capital market union without a fiscal union is a very dangerous thing to do because it may unleash this kind of instability and there is nothing to take care of this. So I'm saying, let's not hurry, right? Jim, and I hear, I hear from the, the German uh, secretary that in fact it's the intention of the Germans not to hurry with capital market union. And my advice would be to follow uh, what the German secretary has been telling us. Thanks, Paul. Jim, would you like to add to that? I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly. Yeah. Look, I just say life is about a choice of the optimal alternative. And so if we don't believe in capital markets unit to support growth in Europe, I suppose we believe we should leave large concentrated risks on the books of national champion European banks. To me, that system strikes me as incredibly unstable, unfair to the taxpayer who will ultimately pick up the bill in some sort of too big to fail regime. So I view capital markets union as the best alternative for risk taking and the best alternative to get the European economy growing again. I'm not saying it's not without challenges. I wouldn't suggest there doesn't need to be regulatory oversight. There absolutely does. But to argue against it would mean you want risk to be concentrated on the books of banks and the retail savers, the taxpayer in every jurisdiction in Europe is ultimately going to pick up that bill. And that, to me, seems like a bad idea. And, and so we just got to be mindful. We can be critical. It may not be perfect, but I would argue it's the best of the various alternatives. Jonathan. Well, it's not as if it's all or nothing. Uh, I know, I'll be very honest, I know there are people out there who will reply, no doubt, to the consultation and say, you must have a supervisor. Uh, and I know that the politics of that will make it very difficult uh, to take that, uh, that issue up if people are minded to do so. But it's not as if there is no supervision. It's not as if ESMA doesn't exist. We have a platform. You may think it's not good enough, that it needs reinforcing. I don't know whether that's a minority view or a majority view. But there is oversight, there is supervision, there is regulation. Uh, it is coordinated by the European Securities Markets Authority. Uh, and insofar as banks are involved by the European Banking Authority with the powers uh, that it has. So we don't start from nothing. I know the temptation is to look at the what happened in banking as an analogy and say you started the euro and you did the monetary union without the economic union then you started regulation uh, without a supervisor and luckily you found an article in the treaty so you could give uh, the european central bank responsibility for uh, the single supervisory mechanism but you only did that in a crisis I don't think, it's an easy conclusion, I don't think this is a case where 
it's only in a crisis that hard decisions uh, are taken. I think we have an opportunity uh, in the consultation process to think about these things, to look at how securities markets, capital markets more generally, are regulated and supervised in our countries. And it's only if, as a matter of uh, objective evidence, people can show me at least, speaking personally, that there is really a problem that needs to be addressed, that I think it's worth taking up what will definitely be uh, a, um, uh, a difficult uh, political issue. Second reaction, if I may, to, to Professor de Grauer, it's true that people talk about Grexit. We have freedom of expression. People talk about lots of things. The institutions of the European Union do not talk about Grexit. But many banks are doing it today by retrenching, so they, they don't believe you. Well, because we are forced to, to be very careful, because of course it's a risk scenario where the, even the probability is very low. If it occurs, it is dramatic. So we have to take it into account. It doesn't mean that we share the view. It's a, it's a risk management purpose. It, it, that's it. But, uh, I want to come back to the capital market union, of course, because it's the topic of the conference. Uh, it's already a reality, in fact. It's, we already have a genuine uh, capital markets union between biggest companies, the most sophisticated banks, the most sophisticated asset managers. The question is about the SMEs again. And of course, we cannot reduce uh, capital market union to access or SMEs to financing. But it's very important because of a couple of reasons. First, SMEs, it's 70 million people employed. It's two-thirds of employment in Europe. It's 85% of job, net job creation in the past decade. And it's two-thirds of, of the added value in Europe. So we have to pay attention to this because, of course, if the banks are not reactive enough to give late credit, which is questionable in some countries. Eh? In some countries, credit, banking credit didn't went back eh? in, in, since the crisis. Anyway, uh, if we, we cannot reduce to SME financing, but if we consider that one of the key purposes of the capital union is to facilitate the, 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 the growth of, of these companies, it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very good idea. It's not a revolution. It's not a big bang. It's not a sprint, it's probably a marathon, we are not in a rush, but it's a very, very good idea for the SMEs. It represents innovation, investment, and jobs, and growth at the end. Thank you. So let's use the last few minutes uh, to take questions from the audience. Hi, Neil Williamson from Aberdeen Asset Management. I just wondered what your view was in terms of uh, demand for, for product versus supply. And what, what I'm getting there is, what I'm getting at there, sorry, is, is how much the population within Europe is demanding the right products and how much it's correctly incentivized by politicians to want the right products. We talked about there's too much debt, an awful lot of investment in Europe is at, at the retail level is just done into bank deposits. Do you get the sense that politicians really understand that and that tax incentive, that, that basically it's about the culture in Europe to get more capital flowing into equity and risk rather than the safety of pure bank deposits? Well, as was said earlier, there are cultural issues here. We're not Americans. Uh, we are much more like each other, by the way, fellow British compatriots, uh, uh, than we sometimes think, we Europeans. Uh, and as my boss likes to say, he's a plumber, not an architect in, in this uh, context. And there are indeed issues on the demand side. I mean, the plumbing, you can mess around under the kitchen sink, but if somebody doesn't turn the tap on upstairs, the water won't flow. Uh, and part of the problem is 
uh, lack of demand, and we heard the German State Secretary talk about structural reforms, and that's all part of that. Uh, plus, indeed, the question you raise is an interesting one. What is the appetite of the individual European uh, investor, <coughs> or indeed simply saver, uh, for some of the things that we're cooking up for her? Uh, and uh, I wouldn't presume to answer that question, and there are half a billion Europeans, and they're very different in, in some respects, uh, uh, in the way they approach these things. Uh, but what we do know, and it comes back to all the things we were saying earlier, is you can see what happens in some of our countries. You can see what happens in some foreign countries, and you have to come to the conclusion that we are missing opportunities. There are things which work, and some people are not doing, and they have a problem which doing it would help solve. Uh, that, I think, is the, the basic starting point for this whole exercise. And, of course, it was in the treaties from the very beginning, the, uh, the founding, they were fathers, I won't be politically correct, uh, of uh, the European Union understood that uh, you need free movement of capital. It turned out to be difficult uh, uh, to achieve totally. It's about time we did it. I would just add, I think we've got to be careful not to be too harder on ourselves in Europe. The market has evolved. It has changed. And I think it's important just to bear in mind where the European retail investor came from. Retail investors in Europe grew up buying high-yielding government bonds. It wasn't that long ago where you could buy an Italian or a Spanish bond yielding 10 or 15%. There was no need to develop credit skills in Europe because the bond market, the government bond market, offered a lot of alternative and offered real yield in your portfolio. Fast forward that movie and look where we are now. I mentioned earlier the high yield bond market has grown at a 30% compound annual growth rate since the financial crisis. So savings is evolving. It is moving to riskier asset classes. It's not gonna happen overnight. I think you're right to raise the cultural point. It's gonna take not just years, decades, maybe longer to change it. But as we sort of unlock uh, the pipe and unclog the pipe, I think that's starting to happen, but we've got to be careful how we measure that because we're not going to notice visible signs, but I think when you look back over a longer time series, you'll see real change. Thank you. We have a question there first. And Jim, you've, you've sort of mentioned the, the retail aspects of demand and, uh, and what might be done there. I think from an institutional investment, uh, investor's perspective, I think two things that particularly concern me about the securitization proposition. One, one is that, uh, you know, how do you square off the liquidity aspects, which is what you've just made a very, very good point of, point of mentioning, Jim, uh, with, with demand? I mean, how are you going to get um, demand flowing to the institutions when they can't, uh, when they can't sort of sell on or, or monetize, particularly within risk portfolios? Uh, and the second aspect is is corollary and possibly uh, amplifies uh, or is amplified by the liquidity problem is that uh, institutions holding securitized bonds mark them to market regardless of the nature of the nature of the book that you're backing uh, uh, using these assets um, what is the incentive for us as institutions to to uh, buy a securitized SME 
product as opposed to just lending direct to the company where we sort of, you know, you don't have a mark-to-market regime there. What you're doing is marking a fair value, which is a whole different ballgame. Yeah, look, so I think there's a lot there in your question. Uh, I'd say a couple things. First, uh, direct lending to SMEs, not only would I not be opposed to it, I think there's many places where it's a good idea. It's just a question of you know, the size of that lending opportunity. Is it worth your while to make a $5 million investment instead of a 25 million euro investment? I don't know where the cutoff would be for your institution or others, but the idea of securitization and pooling of assets I think will allow more SMEs to access credit, but it doesn't have to come at the expense of direct lending. In regards to your question of mark-to-market and lack of liquidity in secondary markets, I'm not gonna suggest I have any great solutions. Um, I think it's a real challenged area right now in the unsecured corporate bond market, but equally in the secured bond markets. There's not enough liquidity out there given the ample new issue conditions we have and given the ample liquidity provisions that we have. So again, I, I worry a lot about it. I don't have a great solution. I'd like to think technology should play a bigger role, connecting buyers and sellers of corporate bonds, connecting buyers and sellers of securitized assets. That hasn't happened yet. I'm really surprised that we haven't seen an electronic trading platform take off. You know, some of the challenges is no one's been willing to embrace a single platform. So I think that's part of the issue. But frankly, I'm very surprised we haven't seen more electronic trading of corporate and securitized assets. But my guess is that will come in the years to follow. Thank you. We have no time left. So let me just thank our panelists. We, we've heard many practical steps to actually implement a, a capital market union, as well as the potential risks that it can bring along. Um, so surely the European Commission will take the comments on board. And uh, thanks everyone, and uh, let me um, join me in, in the, thanking the speakers. So we at the London School of Economics are, and the Systemic Risk Center are delighted to have had the opportunity to work with Goldman Sachs on putting on this, what I think is a very interesting event on the Capital Markets Union. We do need the CMU because of the systemic risk that arises from the old form of financing the banks and too much of ensuring that systemic risk is borne by the SME sector indirectly. We do need to augment bank financing by the new and, uh, new and direct channels between savers and investors and firms. To deliver, the European authorities do need to embrace disruptive technologies and remove the many imped impediments to the unified European financing system. One cannot regulate the market into existence, but we can regulate the market out of existence, as we too often do now. Today's speakers have discussed those topics from every possible direction, and I hope you all walk away much enlightened. I certainly have learned quite a bit today. And this was the first step, and the Systemic Risk Center, I'm sure Goldman Sachs as well, will be spending much time in the future fleshing out the science behind the Capital Markets Union. Before I leave, I'm delighted to thank the magnificent team at the, at the SRC and LSE for all the hard work in creating the event. Thank you very much, Horatio, Catherine, and Anne, and thank you very much also to the Goldman Sachs team. Thank you. So, uh,
So I uh, appreciate that I'm the only thing standing between all of you and a glass of wine outside. So I've learned from experience not to say too much, but I just have two quick remarks. The first is a little bit echoing what you've just heard, um, to thank those involved in the preparation of this from the Goldman Sachs uh, side, particularly the government affairs team at Goldman. Um, obviously to thank the ministers for coming and all of those who have participated in the panels. And of course, all of you for attending uh, today's event, which I hope has proved stimulating and interesting and worthwhile. Uh, the second thing I'd like to say um, is just echoing my remarks at the beginning. Um, we have styled this event as a dialogue. Uh, it's a dialogue that I think has been initiated today, but it's a dialogue that I don't think has been completed today. Um, we heard from Director General Fall that he's launched a consultation last week. That's a consultation that goes on uh, through some time, and the dialogue and consultation hopefully will uh, uh, meld in some respects. So uh, certainly from the Goldman side, as has already been said um, by John, that this is something that we hope to continue with, and um, we hope to invite you back to another event in the not too distant future to take stock and hopefully make further progress. Thank you.